Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. As part of our inspiring TED Talk series, spotlighting can't-miss TED Talks and their key takeaways, today I explore Coach John Wooden's famous 2001 TED Talk, The Difference Between Winning and Success. Welcome back to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I'm pleased to be with you again today for this HCI episode that is part of our inspiring TED Talk series. Today I'll be exploring Coach John Wooden's famous 2001 TED Talk, The Difference Between Winning and Succeeding. With profound simplicity, Coach John Wooden redefines success and urges us all to pursue the best in ourselves. In this inspiring talk, he shares the advice he gave his players at UCLA, quotes poetry, and remembers his father's wisdom. I'll catch you on the flip side of this first clip. I coined my own definition of success in 1934 when I was teaching at a high school in South Bend, Indiana, being a little bit... uh, Uh, disappointed and delusioned perhaps by the way parents of the youngsters in my English classes uh, expected their youngsters to to, uh, get an A or B. They thought a C was all right for the neighbor's children because the neighbor's children are all average. But they weren't satisfied with their own and would make the teacher feel that they had uh, uh, failed or the youngster had failed. And and that's not right. The good Lord in his infinite wisdom didn't create us all equal as far as intelligence concerned, any more than we equal as far as size. Appearance, not everybody could earn an A or B, and I didn't like that way of judging. And and I did know how the alumni of various uh, schools back in the 30s judged coaches and athletic teams. Uh, If you won them all, you were considered to be reasonably successful. Not completely, because I found out uh, we had a number of years at UCLA where we didn't lose a game, but it seemed that we didn't win each individual game by the margin that some of our alumni had predicted, and quite frequently, I, <laughs> quite frequently, I, I really felt that they had backed up their predictions in a more materialistic uh, uh, manner. But I was true back in the 30s, so I understood that. So I, I, but I didn't like it, and I didn't agree with it, and I wanted to come up with something that I hope would make me a better teacher and give the youngsters under my supervision, whether it be in athletics or in the English classroom, something to which to aspire other than just uh, a higher mark in the classroom or more points in some athletic contest. And I thought about that for quite a spell, and I wanted to come up with my own definition. I thought that might help. And uh, I knew how Mr. Webster defined it as the accumulation of material possessions or the attainment of position of power or prestige or something 
of that sort were the accomplishments perhaps, but in my opinion, not necessarily indicative of success. So I wanted to come up with something of my own. And I recalled, uh, I was raised on a small farm in Southern Indiana and dad tried to teach me and my brothers that you should never try to be better than someone else. I'm sure at the time uh, he did that, I didn't, it didn't. Well, somewhere I guess in the hidden recesses of the mind it popped out years later. Never try to be better than someone else. Always learn from others and never cease trying to be the best you could be. That's under your control. And if you get too engrossed and involved and concerned in regard to the things over which you have no control, it will adversely affect the things over which you have control. Then I ran across a simple verse that said, at God's footstool to confess, a poor soul knelt and bowed his head. I failed, he cried. The master said, thou didst thy best. That is success. From those things and one other perhaps, I coined my own definition of success, which is peace of mind attained only through self-satisfaction and knowing you made the effort to do the best of which you're capable. I believe that's true. If you make the effort to do the best of which you're capable, trying to improve the situation that exists for you, I think that's success and I don't think others can judge that. I think it's like character and reputation. Your reputation is what you're perceived to be. Your character is what you really are. And I think the character is uh, much more important than what you are perceived to be. You'd hope they'd both be good, but uh, they don't necessarily be the same. I love how he defines success. Peace of mind that we have done our very best within the circumstances we are in. The truth is we all are in very different circumstances with different privileges, different opportunities. I am a middle-aged, white, straight, cisgender male. Uh, I have tremendous amounts of privilege. Uh, because of that privilege, there are doors open to me and opportunities that I have that other people who are just as intelligent, just as hardworking may not have. Uh, they have other obstacles to overcome that I simply don't have. And so that means if I'm going to uh, maximize my potential, if I'm going to truly live up to uh, my fullest potential, that I can't be just satisfied with with average, um, you know, effort because the truth is uh, I, I can achieve certain levels of what society would call as successful without trying that hard just due to the privileges I've been given. Whereas other people who have had the deck stacked against them uh, have to perform heroic feats just to be considered for positions, just to, to have the opportunity to get into a better neighborhood, to get into a better school. So he's, he's flipping that on its head that, it, you know, he starts off with the, the grades and, and oh my goodness, my first thought was, um, you know, he taught back in the thirties when, when uh, C was actually an average grade with grade inflation nowadays, I can only imagine if you were giving students in middle school or high school C's on a regular basis, like the majority of your students' uh, parents would freak out. But that, that set aside, his, his point was a very good one. And that is that uh, ultimately it's about doing your best. And, and I feel that way with my children. Like I am not at all concerned at whether they get straight A's. I know my kids are smart. I know they're certainly capable but some subjects are going to be harder than them than others. And as long as they do their best, not comparing themselves to anyone else, but just doing their best, then I'm very happy and they should be happy. They should be pleased and they can look themselves in the mirror at night and they can realize 
and have peace of mind that they did their best. That truly is the greatest mark of success. Uh, and on the other hand, you know, my kid could get an A in a class, but really just kind of phone it in, do the bare minimum, um, and it's just kind of an easy A. And that's not satisfying. Like, it's not satisfying for them. Uh, it, it, as a parent, you know, I'm, I guess I'm happy that they got an A, but it doesn't really mean anything. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's about doing your best. Same thing in sports, same thing at work and any walk of life within the circumstances and the context you're, you're given and that you find yourself that you, you maximize your potential so that you can have peace of mind. That peace of mind in and of itself is probably the greatest gift you can be given. Well, that was my idea of what I was going to try to get across to the youngsters. I ran across other things. I love to teach, and it was mentioned uh, by the previous uh, uh, speaker that, that uh, I enjoy poetry and I dabble in it a bit and love it. And there are some things that help me, I think, be better than I would have been. I know I'm not what I ought to be and not what I should be, but I, I think I'm better than I would have been if I hadn't run across certain things. And one was just a little verse that said, uh, um, no, no written word, no spoken plea can teach our youth what they should be, nor all the books on all the shelves is what the teachers are themselves. That made an impression on me in, in, the, in the 1930s, and, and uh, I tried to use that uh, more or less in my teaching, whether it be in sports or whether it be in the English classroom. And I... I I, I love poetry and always had an interest in that and somehow, and I, maybe it's because dad and used to read uh, to us at night in the coal oil lamp. We didn't have electricity uh, in our farm home and dad would read poetry to us. So I always liked it. And about the same time that I ran across this one verse, I ran across another one that someone asked a, a lady teacher why she taught. And she, uh, after some time, she said she wanted to think about that. And then she came up and said, uh, they ask me why I teach, and I reply, where could I find such splendid company? There sits a statesman, strong, unbiased, wise, another later Webster, silver-tongued. A doctor sits beside him whose quick, steady hand may mend a bone or stem the lifeblood's flow. And there a builder, upward rise the arch of that church he builds, wherein that minister may speak the word of God and lead a stumbling soul to touch the Christ. And all about a gathering of teachers, farmers, merchants, laborers, those who work and vote and build and plan and pray, and pray into a great tomorrow. And I may say, I may not see the church or hear the word or eat the food their hands may grow, but yet again I may. And later I may say, I knew him once, and he was weak or strong or bold or proud or gay. I knew him once, but then he was a boy. They ask me why I teach, and I reply, where could I find such splendid company? And I believe the teaching profession, that's true. You have so many youngsters. And I got to think of my youngsters at UCLA, 30-some attorneys, uh, 11 uh, uh, dentists, 10 doctors, uh, many, many teachers in, in, in other professions. And that, that uh, gives you a, a great deal of pleasure to see them go on. I, I always tried to make the youngsters feel that they're there to get an education, number one, basketball was second because it's paying their way. And they do need a little time for social activities, but you let social activities take a little precedence over the other two and you're not going to have any uh, very long. So that was the ideas that I, I tried to, uh, to get across uh, uh, to the youngsters under my supervision. I love the poem and I love that as a coach, his number one goal for his students 
for his players was, in fact, to be good students, that that was his focus. Now, he was at a top university. They were competing for national championships uh, just about every year. Uh, Expectation levels were high in terms of winning, like actually getting the W, scoring more points than others. But he never fell into the trap of thinking that it was actually the wins. It was actually having more points at the end of the game you know, than the the opponent, he never fell into the trap that that was the mark of true success. And uh, ultimately he wanted his players to be good students because let's be honest, the vast majority of those players, even in a top national program, the vast majority of those players are never going to play basketball at a professional level. They simply aren't. So they need their college education. And he was so pleased and he, he found it so fulfilling to see what they would accomplish throughout their lives, utilizing what they learned in college and what they learned from being part of a team. That is so impressive. I wish uh, more uh, college uh, coaches and college athletes had that perspective today. Uh, and I, and I think that's actually kind of a, a sad um, note on society today that, uh, so many um, college athletes never even complete their degree and uh, that their, their focus is, is certainly not usually on, on their academics. I'm always pleased when I see that to be the case. So again, we need to make sure that we're focusing on what matters. What mattered for him as a coach was true personal success on the part of each individual player. That meant being a good student. That meant trying their best on the team, maximizing their potential. It really had very little to do with, you know, their raw talent. It had very little to do with their raw, you know, their physical size. It had very little to do with how many points they scored or whether they even won the game. It had everything to do with how they carried themselves, how they behaved, how they treated each other, and how they lived their lives. I had three rules, pretty much, that I stuck with practically all the time. I'd learned these prior to coming to UCLA, and I decided they were very important. One was never be late. Never be late. Um, uh, later on, I had, I had certain things that I had. The players, if we're leaving for someone, they had to be neat and clean. There was a, ni- a time when I, I made them wear uh, um, uh, jackets and shirts and ties, but, and then I saw our... Chancellor coming to school in, Long- in uh, Denham's and, and Turtlenecks, and I thought it was a little not right for me to keep this other, so I let them just, they had to be neat and clean. And I had one of my, uh, one of my greatest players that you probably heard of, Bill Walton. He came and, uh, and gets the bus, we were leaving for somewhere and to play, and he wasn't clean and neat, so I, I would let him go. He couldn't get on the bus, he had to go home and, and, and get cleaned up to get to the airport if he did. So I, I was a stickler for that. I believed in that. I believe in time, very important. I believe you should be on time, but I felt at practice, for example, we start on time, we close on time. The youngsters didn't have to feel that we're going to keep them over. When I speak at coaching clinics, I often tell young coaches, and the coaching clinics, more, than, more or less, they'll be the younger coaches uh, getting in the, in the profession, and, and most of them are young, you know, and, and probably newly married, and I tell them, don't run practices uh, late because you'll go home in a bad mood. And then that's not good for a young married man to go home in a bad mood. When you get older, when you get older, it doesn't make any difference, but... Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, 
So I did believe on time. I believe starting on time, and I believe closing on time. And another one I had was not one word of profanity. One word of profanity, and you, you are out of here for the day. And if I see it in a game, you're going to come out and sit on the bench. And the third one was uh, never criticize a teammate. I, I didn't want that. I used to tell them I was paid to do that. That's my job. I'm paid to do it. Pitifully poor, but I am paid to do it. Not like the coaches today, for gracious sakes, no. Uh, they're, they're, it's, it's a little different than it, than it was in my day. But those are the three things that I uh, stuck with uh, pretty closely all the time. And uh, uh, those actually came from my dad. And that's what he tried to uh, teach me and uh, my uh, brothers at one time. Never be late, don't use profanity, and never talk bad about a teammate. Those are uh, really simple kind of guiding rules and principles, I suppose. And many uh, might even consider them to be kind of naive and obsolete kind of conditions to put on a basketball player in 2020. Uh, you know, I think he he, t- he talks about um, how you dress and he talks about making sure you're on time and don't swear. Um, you know, I, uh, it, it's almost funny to even think about that today because I, I suspect the vast majority of coaches swear up a storm and, and I don't believe that's a very consistently kind of held standard for players to not swear. Um, but certainly what he's talking about is self-control, regardless of what you think about swearing, uh, regardless of what you think about, uh, you know, showing up a few minutes late or starting something late. Um, it's about self-control. It's about self-mastery. It's about uh, learning how to, uh, to interact with others in a positive way, to control yourself and your passions, be dis- to be disciplined enough, to be on time, to show up, ready to go, ready to work hard, uh, not to be, um, so, uh, so loose in terms of your personal control that you can't keep yourself from swearing. Uh, and, and then ultimately you have each other's back. Like you do not talk bad about one another. You, you have your teammates backs. Um, you support each other. You, and we're not going to have infighting. We're not going to be divided amongst ourselves. We're going to make sure that we work hard and there will be disagreements. There will be, uh, upset feelings. Uh, there will be times where people don't perform at the level they should. That's the job of the coach to get on people to, to work and to improve, uh, for the team. It's their job to have each other's back, to support each other, to care about each other, to honor and respect each other enough that they will have self-discipline. I came up with a, a pyramid eventually that I'm not going to, we don't have the time to go on that, but uh, that to help me, I think, become a better teacher. And uh, this is something like this, and I had blocks in the pyramid, and uh, the cornerstones being industrious and enthusiasm, working hard and enjoying what you're doing, coming up to the apex, uh, according to my definition of success, and right at the top, faith and patience. And I say to you, in whatever you're doing, you must be patient. You have to have patience. To, uh, we want things to happen to us. We talk about our youth being impatient a lot, and they are. Uh, they want to change everything. They think all change is progress. And we get a little older, we sort of let things go, and we forget that there is no progress without change. So you must have patience, and I believe that we must have faith. I believe that we must believe, really believe, not just, not just give a word service, believe that things will work out as they should, 
providing we do what we should. I think our tendency is to hope that things will turn out the way we want them to so much of the time, but we don't do the things that uh, are necessary to make those things uh, become reality. Uh, I've worked on this for some 14 years, and I, I think it helped me become a better teacher, but it all evolved around that original definition of success. You know, a, a number of years ago, there was a Major League Baseball umpire by the name of George Moriarty, and he spelled Moriarty with only one I. That's that, I'd never seen that before, but he did. And big league baseball players, they're, they're very perceptive about those things, and they noticed he had only one I in his name. And you'd, you'd be surprised how many also told him that that was one more than he had in his head at various times. <laughs> But he wrote something that I think he did what I tried to do in this pyramid. He called it the road ahead or the road behind. And he said, sometimes I think the fates must grin as we denounce them and insist the only reason we can't win is the fates themselves have missed. Yet there lives on the ancient claim we win or lose within ourselves. The shining trophies on our shelves can never win tomorrow's game. You and I know deeper down there's always a chance to win the crown. But when we fail to give our best... We simply haven't met the test of giving all and saving none until the game is really won. Of showing what is meant by grit, of playing through and others quit, of playing through not letting up, it's bearing down that wins the cup, of dreaming there's a goal ahead, of hoping when our dreams are dead, of praying when our hopes have fled, yet losing, not afraid to fall, if bravely we have given all, for who can ask more of a man than giving all within his span? Giving all, it seems to me, is not so far from victory. And so the fates are seldom wrong, no matter how they twist and wind, it's you and I who make our fates. We open up or close the gates on the road ahead and the road behind. Faith and patience are key. Patience to have the discipline and the, and the sustained ongoing effort to put the work in to see things come to fruition because most things don't happen immediately. You, know, you have to work hard at it and faith that that effort will pay off over time. Patience and faith. That's what it comes down to. Whether you're trying to improve your basketball skills, you're trying to improve your abilities in the classroom or in the workplace, you're trying to develop skills and competencies. You want to get to that next level. You want to take on a managerial or leadership role, whatever, you, you have to have faith and you have to have patience. And I think that's the hallmark of personal success and probably professional success as well. And it's also the hallmark, it's really the telltale sign of someone who's on their way out when their, their patience and their faith starts to fade. And I'm always nervous when I see particularly the A players, the, the very best, uh, those who are the biggest contributors when they start to get quiet, they start to, they they stop pushing, they stop um, challenging, they stop putting forth the effort. Um, it's you know, and then they they end up disengaging and even leaving the organization or the team. That's because they're losing their patience, they're losing their faith. And why? Often, again, often the, those A players, your best people, your highest performers, it's because uh, because there's only so long you can beat your head against a wall. Uh, before you're really just like, is this even worth it? Um, can, you know, trying to make change from within or, you know, I can just move on, move on to another organization, take on a new role. Um, it's something I've struggled with at times in my life. Uh, I think I'm some, someone that has a lot of patience. I think I have uh, exceptional faith and optimism, 
that I'm willing to pound my head against that brick wall for a really long time and bludgeon and bloody myself for the benefit of my people and for the organization because it, uh, you know the organization is something I love because I care about my people. I'm willing to do that for a very long time. Uh, but at some point when you have toxic leadership, you have people that don't believe in you, you have people that aren't supportive of you, that ultimately you give up and you say, nope, this, this isn't it. This is a toxic relationship. I'm not going to continue. And, you know, so hopefully we find ourselves in environments where we don't shut down that initiative, where we don't cause the best people to leave or disengage, where we can help to encourage their patients. We can help to encourage uh, their, their faith in the system, faith in their, their organization, the, the institutionalization and mechanisms that will allow their efforts to be rewarded and allow for things to be improved. That's what we need to do as leaders. As a coach, that's what he was trying to do, to foster that faith, to foster that patience, to help his people be committed and put in sustainable effort. We can do the same thing within our teams. I'm excited to announce the publication of my new book from HCI Press, The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership, Ordinary Everyday Actions That Produce Extraordinary Results. Consider how the nature of work has shifted over the past 50 years. With increased globalization, rapid technological advancement, and the shift in economic composition, the average job of today looks very different than the average job of 50 years ago. What will the jobs and organizations of tomorrow look like? Moreover, what does this all mean for organizational leaders? What are the core competencies and capabilities of organizations and their leadership that are prepared for continued disruption and geopolitical and socioeconomic shifts? Regardless of what the future holds, increasingly, leaders need to be socially minded, data-driven, decisive, champions of talent, and disruptors of the traditional notions of leadership, teams, organizations, and work. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. Reminds me of another set of threes that my dad tried to get across to us. No whine, don't complain, don't make excuses. You get out there and whatever you're doing, do it to the best of your ability. And no one can do more than that. Um, I tried to get across to that. My punishment will tell you, never heard me mention winning. Never mention winning. My idea is that you can lose when you outscore somebody in a game. And you can win when you're outscored. I've felt that way on certain occasions at various times. And I, w I just wanted to be able to be able to hold their head up after a game. I used to say that when, when a game is over and you see somebody that didn't know the outcome, I hope they couldn't tell by your actions uh, whether you outscored an opponent or the opponent outscored you. Um, uh, and th that's what really matters. If you make your effort to do the best you can regularly, uh, the results will be about what they should be. Not necessarily what you'd want them to be, but they'll be about what they should. And only you will know whether you can do that. And that's what I wanted from them uh, uh, more than anything else. And as time went by and I learned more about other things, I, I think it worked a little better. 
as far as the results. But I wanted the, the score of a game to be the uh, byproduct uh, of these other things and, and not the end itself. I believe it was... Uh, uh, and, <clears throat> don't whine, don't complain, don't make excuses. And I can imagine as a coach, that's something you're going to want to continually reinforce with your players. And again, I mean, there, there are times where the deck is just stacked against you, where you just do not have the same privilege and opportunity as others, uh, where others are afforded more you know, natural ability, more natural intelligence, more whatever, or just the sheer dumb luck that it, it's just in their favor. Um, but we don't whine. We don't make excuses. We just continually put forth that effort. And when we do that, we will see improvement. We will see our skill level, our competencies improve. We'll see our relationships improve. That one of the most toxic things though that happens within organizations and within teams is when people really just start to get into that um, disengaged, whiny, excuse-making phase uh, where, and they, and they can't accept personal responsibility. They can't allow themselves to consider that perhaps it's not just their context, but it's something about them, something about their performance, something that they're not doing that they need to change in order to be more successful and they're not willing to do it. So ultimately we need to be clear eyed enough. We need to be self-reflective enough to always be looking for ways for improvement and not be inclined to revert back to kind of that natural tendency to just complain. That's not to say we can't vent at times that we can't, uh, you know, express our displeasure. And certainly we need to speak up and speak out when we think, when we see inequities in play, when we see people being treated poorly, uh, those things are important. Uh, but whining for whining's sake, being the martyr, just trying to constantly paint ourselves, uh, in our, our situation as, uh, untenable, unwinnable kind of a situation. It, it may actually be unwinnable and untenable and reasonable kind of um, situation we find ourselves in. But if that's a situation we're going to remain in and not leave the organization for another opportunity, if that's the situation we're in, you know, what's, what's the alternative? Then we, we have to make the most of it. And if we're going to try to make the most of it, that means we need to try to stay positive, not pretend like everything is okay, but try to look on the bright side, try to look at the cup half full, remain optimistic, have some faith, put forth sustainable effort in the long term, and then we'll be able to at least maximize our potential within that context. And again, it's not about winning. It's not about getting that next job. It's about being able to look yourself in the mirror at night and be able to feel that self-assurance that you know you did the very best you could possibly do. And then you let it go. You, you let the failures go. You let um, the disappointments go, you, you know, and whether you want or not, you let it go. One great philosopher said, no, no, Cervantes. Cervantes said, the journey is better than the end. And, and, and I like that. I, I think that is, it, it's getting there. Sometimes when you get there, there's almost a letdown, but it's getting there. That's the fun. I like to, as a basketball coach at UCLA, I liked our practices to be the journey and the, the game would, would be the end, the end result. And I'd like to go up and sit in the stands and, and watch the players play and see whether I'd done a decent job uh, during the week. I, and there again, it, it's getting the players to get that self-satisfaction knowing that they've made the effort to do the best of, of, of which uh, uh, they are capable. 
Um, sometimes I'm asked uh, who was who um, the best player I had over the best teams. I, I can never answer that. Uh, uh, as far as the individual are concerned, I, I like to, I was asked one time uh, about that, and I said, suppose that you in some way could, could, could make the perfect player, what would you want? And I said, well, I'd want one that knew why he was at UCLA to get an education, that was a good student, uh, really knew why he was there in the first place. But I want one that could play, too. I don't want one to realize that, uh, that defense usually wins championships and will work hard on defense. And, but I, I'd want one to play offense, too. I want him to be unselfish and, and look for the pass first and not shoot all the time. And um, I don't want one that could pass and would pass. I've had some that... <laughs> I've had some that could and wouldn't, and I've had some that would and could. You, sure, you, you, you couldn't, so you, you child, so um, I wanted that, and I, I wanted them to be able to shoot from the outside, and I wanted to be able to be good inside, too. And, 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 and I'd want them to be able to be able to rebound well at both ends, too, and why not just take someone like uh, Keith Wilkes and let it go at that? He, he had the qualifications, and not the only one, but he was one that I used in that uh, particular category because I think he, he made the effort to become the best of a couple. I love that he focuses on the journey, that that's the most important thing. And for his basketball team, that journey was the practices, the games in winning. That was just like a nice outcome, um, a nice consequence of the journey. So if you had effective practices, people working their hardest, working, trying their best, doing the most they could do to maximize their potential in practice day in, day out consistently, uh, then the, the wins would come, you know, or they wouldn't. And if they didn't, as long as everyone tried their very best and the other team was just better and just, just uh, had more points at the end of the game, you still would walk off the court with your head held high. You knew that you did the best you possibly could. When he's talking about like what would his uh, d- best desired player be, like what characteristics, what would he want, and he starts going through the list of like, oh, I want this, oh, and yeah, and I want that. They need, they should be good at defense, oh, and yeah, offense too. Um, you know, I think that's kind of humorous and funny. And sure, we want, we want, you know, the very best on our team. We hope that we can attract uh, the best people. Um, but the reality is, we often have constraints. Uh, whether it be our geography and the types of people we can attract to our location because of where we're at, or maybe it's just um, how much money you have in your budget to attract good talent and to retain them. Uh, we have uh, constraints and we have limitations a lot of times. I've seen this, you know, I'm a, I'm a professor, I'm a department chair in a department, uh, and sometimes we have the best candidate, the person we know is going to be awesome. We want them and we just can't get them because we can't pay them enough because we just can't offer as much as maybe another university can. And that's just the way it is. Uh, and so he, he recognizes that. Um, and, but he, that doesn't mean he, he shouldn't be looking for, you know, people that have these various skills and attributes. And he ultimately knows what it takes to be successful. Uh, he is very clear that, uh, you know, it's, it's defense that wins national championships, but, oh yeah, you want some offense too. Uh, how, how thoughtful are you about the characteristics of the people on your team that you, that you really need? What, what's most important and what's secondary? And then you go out and you look for that. And some things, um, you, you might be, get lucky and you might really land that, that, uh, you know, that rock star, a player person that just has everything you could ever want. That usually doesn't happen though. Most of the time, 
Uh, we, we have a team of support players and we, it's our job as coach or as leader within the organization to bring out the best within them, to help them see that potential within themselves, help them to develop and, and maximize what they can do and then complement the skill sets of others on your team. So ultimately everyone can be successful. I mentioned in my book, they call me coach uh, that, uh... Uh, two players that gave me great satisfaction and it came as close as I think anyone I ever had to reach their full potential. One was Conrad Burke and one was Doug McIntosh. When I saw them as freshmen on our freshman team, we didn't have freshmen, couldn't play varsity when I, I taught. And uh, I thought, oh gracious, if these two players, either one of them, they're different years, but I thought about each one of them at the time he was there. Oh, if he ever makes the varsity, our varsity must be pretty miserable if he's good, to make it, good enough to make it. And you know, one of them, uh, was a starting uh, player for uh, a season and a half, and the other one was uh, his next year. He played uh, 32 minutes in a national championship game, did a tremendous for us, and the next year he was a starting, a starting player on a national championship team. And here I, I, I thought he'd never play a minute. When it was, uh, so those are the things that, that give you a, a great joy and great satisfaction to see one. Neither one of those youngsters could shoot very well, but they had outstanding shooting percentages because they didn't, didn't force it. And neither one could uh, jump very well, but they get, kept good position, and so they did well rebounding. They remembered that, uh, that every shot is taken, they assumed it'd be missed. I've had two men that stand around, wait to see if it's missed, then they go and shoot late. Somebody else is in there ahead of them. Uh, and and uh, they weren't very quick, but they played good position, kept in good balance. And, and so they, they played pretty good defense for us. So they had qualities that they came close to, uh, as close to reaching possibly their full potential as uh, any players I ever had. So I consider them as to be as successful as a, as a Lewis Alcindor or a Bill Walton or uh, in many of the others that we had. There were some outstanding, uh, outstanding uh, uh, players. I have I rambled enough? <laughs> I, I, I was heard that when he makes his appearance, I was supposed to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> talks about um, those players that he he felt were just the best players you know the ones that really uh, showed the greatest success it wasn't necessarily those the 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 ones that went on to the NBA the ones that were Hall of Famers uh, the ones that maybe had the the most raw talent he highlighted two individuals that he didn't think had a whole lot of potential, frankly. They were on the practice squad, the, the freshman team, and he didn't see them as being real contributors. He didn't see there, there being any chance. But they worked their butts off. They worked hard, and they earned their spot onto the starting role in the varsity team, into the ch national championship teams. Um, and they, they maximized their potential. They weren't the fastest, they weren't the strongest, they weren't the most capable, but they worked hard, they positioned themselves well, they did everything they could do to maximize their potential. That's what I want from the players, um, uh, so to speak, on my team at, the work, at, at work. I want them to be the very best they can be. And that doesn't mean they're always going to be, you know, the the most uh, naturally talented or most naturally um, skillful, knowledgeable person. But if, if they're hardworking and they are people of integrity and they're willing to put in the work each and every day, 
chances are they're going to float to the top. They're going to be better than 80, 90% of the other employees because they're going to do what needs to be done to improve. That's what I want to see when I'm a leader. The truth of the matter is there are limitations put on all of us. All of us find ourselves within different contexts. We have different opportunities. We have different natural abilities, different natural skills. Um, Some things come easier to us than others. But we can grow, we can develop, we can have a growth mindset. And if we work hard consistently over time, we can develop ourselves. And as a leader, that is my number one goal, is to help develop my people. And how I determine success, you know, I I want good metrics. I want the KPIs to be in place. I want to have good return on investment for all of our initiatives. Like all of those things are important. I want that. But ultimately, the greatest measure of success isn't any of those things. It's, are my people maximizing their potential? Are they being the best they can possibly be? Are they putting in that effort? Am I supporting them? Am I helping them to grow? And as he said at the very beginning of his talk, ultimately, if you have that self-assurance, if if you feel comfortable in your own skin, you know that you did your best, that is the greatest gift that you can be given. And that is the mark of true success. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. As always, I hope you stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you have a great week. We are excited about the launch of HCI's new magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free, interactive e-magazine designed to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We will be publishing issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Check out the first issue and let us know what you think. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.